Tonight's Bible readings are both from uh, Daniel and Revelation, and the first of our two readings tonight is from Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 14. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a, like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So we'll now go to the New Testament to uh, Revelation chapter 1, uh, verses 9 to 20, beginning on uh, page 1062 of the Black Bible. I, John... Your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of a word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand 
and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello, my friends. My name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here at church, and I'm normally pastoring over at 6 p.m. at Neutral Bay Church, and so it's, it's a real treat to be here. I feel like that first time that your parents let you go out on your own at night, it's pretty exciting to be here. Lovely seeing so many faces. Um, it's a real joy to be able to just sit here together and to, to look upon Jesus. And one of the features of being a modern person that lives in secular Australia is that we have uh, an uncommon fixation upon ourselves. Um, for the fellow nerds out there, can I get an amen from any nerds? Oh, woo, I'll take that. Nerds are not usually that excited. We call this expressive individualism. It's the sense that we define ourselves and find our meaning and significance by finding something within ourselves or finding something external to ourselves that we can define and express to the world around us so that we can almost prove that the air that we're breathing is worthwhile, that we should exist here. And it's an exhausting process because it's a consistent fixation upon ourselves. Now, most of us sitting here think of ourselves as intelligent, unbiased people who arrive at our convictions and our beliefs with a blank slate because we've, we've got these rational brains that are able to discern the world around us. And so we are who we are because we've worked that out for ourselves. But can I tell you, that's just a myth, hey? It's just not true. Every single one of us is looking through a set of glasses that have been gifted to us, whether it's a good gift or a bad one, by the culture that we're living in by the families that brought us up, by the world that we exist within. It's the air that we breathe. It's the ocean that we swim in. You ask a fish, where do you live? And they don't really know the difference between the ocean and the sky because it's all they know, and that's you and me. The way that you think and feel and and arrive at who you are is not this unbiased process. And I'm here to say it's actually not always a good thing that we're coming from a place of fixation upon self that actually hampers us being the people that God made us to be. That you and I, as we look more and more upon ourselves, are actually being having our vision obscured of the God who made us and the God who cares deeply about us. And it's so important that we correct that. It will constantly be part of who we are. It's part of where we live and how we've been brought up. But when we can name it and say, these are the glasses that I'm looking through, these are the colors that have painted me, we have an opportunity to change our vision from ourselves to behold the God who made us. Now, it's important that we name this because Satan loves to use this cultural moment to pull us away from Jesus. He doesn't want to confront us and challenge us in where we are in our spiritual reality because that'll show us the fact that there's a spiritual war being waged. Instead, he'd much prefer to distract us. He'd much prefer to have you looking so closely at yourself and this little life that you're trying to curate for yourself, so much so that God just fades into the background. Now, you might be a believer of Jesus. You might have deep faith and a courage to to live boldly for Him. But if we aren't aware of this influence within us, Satan is just pushing us further and further away from a place where God can do the transforming work that only God can do. And so I don't have anything particularly fancy for you tonight other than this. We need to look at Jesus. We just need to look at Jesus. The place of our transformation and the place of of all the good that God has for us is to stand in the presence of God and to behold Jesus. 
The ancient world, they used to think that everything revolved around the earth. And when we finally had that scientific revolution come around, it meant suddenly a complete sparking of change. That The world that we live in right now is largely a product of this revolution that we went through. You and I need a revolution. I'm going to put it real plainly. You're not the center of the world. No, but I am, Nick. You don't know me, all right? <laughs> You're not the center of the world. The sun is at the center of the world, the son of God the risen, reigning, exalted King Jesus who came and lived in this world, who gave up his life and all of his breaths for your sake, who died but didn't stay dead, who rose to glorious life and who right now is seated at the right hand of the Father and will return to judge the living and the dead. It's when we can get out of ourselves and gaze upon him that we can finally arrive at the place that we were meant to be. We were made for him, and to him we'll return. And so now's the moment to look beyond ourselves and to gaze upon him. So that's what we're going to do. If you haven't got your Bible still open, I want to encourage you, get that open. We're hanging out in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. First thing is just the setting that we find ourselves in. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is John, the uneducated fisherman turned apostle, who, living a life of obscurity, was called out by Jesus to follow him and to abandon his old way and to give himself completely over to the God who made him. And he, along with these 11 other men at the time, from obscurity, changed the known world to this very day. And it's so important that we recognize that when God comes and gives us a vision of himself and calls us to follow him, he can absolutely transform any humble beginnings that we have. And he can take us and use us for mighty works. So much so that this John is on this island of Patmos in what we think is his 90s. I mean, one, man, nice job making it to your 90s in the ancient world. That's unheard of. But he's in this prison colony where they're making him do hard labor. He's seen these other 11 apostles all murdered for their faith. And yet here he is saying, I am a brother and a companion in the suffering of Jesus. This man has been transformed by the Jesus that he met. And, and he's, he's just positioned perfectly, ready to receive what God has for him. Did you notice verse 10? It's a little confusing, but I love it. It says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. Now, the Lord's day might be referring to the Sabbath. That's what immediately comes to mind. And that's a, a, a very viable interpretation. Um, this, this phrase isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament. I'm more inclined to think of it as really the day of Jesus as he's returned to heaven in his ascension and will come back to judge the living and the dead at his return, that we're living in the Lord's day, that this is the moment that God has prepared for us. And, and John is not saying I was on you know Saturday hanging out praying. He's saying, I was positioned in this Lord's day and I was in the Spirit. Now that, that might sound a bit you know, spiritual and hoo-ha and a bit weird, but, but really the Spirit is the indwelling of God within us. He's saying, I was experiencing and dwelling within the presence of the God who made me and loved me on the day that God has made me. And that's when I met this vision of Jesus. And I want to say that's the place that we need to be in. Right now, as we stand between the, the going of Jesus and the return of Jesus, we need to be a people who live in the Spirit who aren't marked by this world and all that this world wants to put upon us, but instead live out of the, the God who lives within us. To know that actually the presence of the living God who made all things and who holds all things together is right here. There's never a moment that he's not there. It's more about whether we have eyes to see it. 
We need to be a people like John in the Spirit. When he's in the Spirit, he says, verse 10, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. First thing I think we're going to see about Jesus is that Jesus is glorious. Jesus is majestic. Jesus is so much more than we could have ever imagined. Now, you might have a picture of Jesus on his earthly ministry where he's you know, walking around from town to town, dressed in a dusty robe and sandals that probably don't quite fit him, and he's you know, reaching down to the lowly in society. And we love that picture of Jesus because that's the heartbeat of his compassion and his love. But the Jesus that we're shown here is the flip of that, where in all of his love and mercy we see the glory and the majesty that he has the authority to come and to give his life for the, as a ransom for many. And so it says he heard a voice like a trumpet in the Old Testament, when the people of God were summoned together to hear from God, how did we get their attention? We sound the trumpet. And so when Jesus speaks, this is not just a man with a normal voice. This is the person that's summoning you to come to the presence of God. I love that. Now, Revelation isn't here to confuse you. It's here to clarify things. You know, many of us, we come here and we just go, I have no idea why this guy has a sword coming out of his mouth or why he seems to be just weirdly glowing. I'd love a piece of that foundation. It seems to be going great. We get confused, right? But for the original audience, they're immersed in their Old Testament, and you realize that all of these details have meaning. The trumpet is the summoning of the people of God to hear from God. And so John turns to come face to face with the God who made him, who loves him, and who dies for him. He turns around, verse 12, to see the voice that he was speaking to him. And who does he see? He sees someone like a son of man which is just like fancy talk for saying a human, right? It's, it's, it's not anything special unless you've been reading your Old Testament and you read that Daniel 7 chapter that we read before and you realize that this person like a son of man is the person that we've all been waiting for. He's the one we've pinned all our hopes on. He's the one that without whom we have nothing to look forward to. And he's flagging for us, this is the ancient of days. This is the infinite, eternal one who made you, who knows you, and who loves you. He's dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet. That's the garment of a priest. But more than that, he's got a golden sash around his chest, fashionable, but also a mark of the high priest. This is the priest of priests. This is not just any high priest. This is the one who, in his ministry, took the sacrifice of himself and laid it upon the altar of God so that you might know with certainty that you have been forgiven of everything. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, the brokenness that only you know inside, God knows it. And he says, I have finished the work that only I can do. You are forgiven. This is your high priest. The hair on his head was white like wool, a symbol of purity in Isaiah, a symbol of wisdom in Proverbs, and a symbol of the ancient of days in Daniel 7. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Ezekiel 42, this is the voice of God that is so immersive and, and, and just so loud that it drowns out all other sounds so that all you can hear is the rushing waters of his voice. And out of his mouth, the, my favorite from the youth boys today in our Bible study was like, how does he eat food? You know, he's got, he's got a big sword coming out of his mouth. What, is, what does he do? Great question. I, they, I couldn't come up with an answer. Anyways, he's got this sword coming out of his mouth, a sharp double-edged sword. And that harkens back to Hebrews 4. speaks about the word of God that's sharper than any double-edged sword, that, that cleaves through soul and spirit to say that this Jesus, this, this ancient of days, this glorious, majestic one, when he speaks, it cuts. 
He cuts through all of the barriers that we put up against God. He cuts through all of the lies that we've immersed ourselves in and he gets right to the heart and he draws you closer to himself with this double-edged sword that should be one a, a utensil of wounding and of, of harming but happens to be this moment of healing as he gets right away from all of your excuses and pulls you closer to himself. And this is my favourite part about the picture of Jesus. This is where you see his glory on full display. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Do you remember Moses going up Mount Sinai? Maybe you heard it in Scripture. Maybe you've read it in your Bibles. He goes up the top of this mountain and God gives him 10 commandments to write down on tablets. He comes back down from the mountain and his face is just like glowing. And all the people of Israel see him and they're like, bro, can you just chill out a little bit? Like, that's a lot. Maybe you get like a good hat or something to just cover your face because we can't handle you right now, right? This Moses who, who spent just a short time in the presence of God was so marked by the glory of the one that he beheld that it shone out of his face. That's what you're supposed to see here in this Jesus. But apart from one who stood in the presence of God for a while, this is the one from whom that glory shines forth. This is not just someone who's been with God. This is God. And as John beholds him, verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Let me ask you, has Jesus flattened you? Have you been just completely upended and turned over by an encounter with the glorious Jesus? My fear is that so many of us have really big and beautiful beliefs about the God who made us. We know Jesus and so much about him. But have you truly stepped into his presence and encountered the glory of Jesus? Yes, he is our savior. Yes, he died so that you might live. But if you don't come to grips with the profound sinfulness that you have in the presence of the holy God, you can't possibly comprehend the grace that he offers you. John, this man who's been following him for 60 years of his life, who's given everything away, spends a moment in his presence and he falls down like he's dead. That would terrify me. It should terrify you. And yet Jesus is not just the glorious one. He's also the one that holds on to us. Just look at the way that Jesus treats this, this John. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Isn't that beautiful? Firstly, I got questions. How did he not stab him with his mouth sword when he tried to touch him with his right hand? That's another question for my youth boys. But there's just a tenderness here that, that this glorious one that no one should be able to behold not only is standing before this John, but just places his hand on him and says, don't be afraid. Are you aware that that's Jesus' posture to you? Yes, you need to see him in his glory. You need to come to grips with who you are and who he is. But when you are flattened by him, he picks you right up. And he says, I love you. You are my son. You are my daughter. I died for you. I gave my life for you. But I once was dead, but now I'm alive. And now I hold the keys of death and Hades in my hand. Now, the people who are reading this for the first time, if you were a Christian in the first century, you were signing up to be beaten up. There was not a healthy, safe place for you to be a Christian. The Jewish people would persecute you. The Gentiles would persecute you. The Roman Empire would persecute you. You were signing up for a rough gig, right? And yet we read this and you realize so clearly that even the most terrible authorities in our land, all they can do is kill me. 
All they can do is persecute me. They can put my body through immense suffering. They can separate me from my 90 years on this world. But once I die, do you know who I'm going to stand before? The risen reigning King Jesus who holds death in his hand. The Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Jesus that says that I have come so that they may have life and life to the full. The Jesus who says, yes, they took your life, but I'm going to take your robe and dip it in my blood and you're going to come out more pure and perfect than you could have ever imagined. I don't care what you're facing in this world. You need to know that Jesus is more. Jesus brings victory. Jesus has overcome. And now that's not a promise of of a perfect life. No one's suggesting that. I mean, this is John writing, who saw 11 of his best mates murdered and who's in a prison colony, right? Like no one's pretending that being a Christian is an easy thing. But far more than an easy thing, it is everything. When you have Jesus, you have everything. There's this this hymn that I um, got into weirdly when I was 16, not because I was into hymns, but because I found this band called Ascend the Hill. Anyone out there like Ascend the Hill? Yeah. They, they took hymns and like put cool guitars and drums to it. And 15-year-old Nick loved it. Anyways, I found this hymn, Take the World, But Give Me Jesus. I just want to share this verse with you. I love it. It says, Take the world, but give me Jesus, sweetest comfort of my soul. With my Savior watching over me, I can sing those thunders roll. When we see Jesus clearly, fear melts away. The world loses its luster, and the joy that we hope to find in this temporary place is no longer as appealing. Instead, we see a Jesus who is everything to us and offers us everything we could have ever longed for. I don't have anything fancy for you, but I want you to look at Jesus. If there's anything that you could ever do to change your life, to make a decision and a a moment to move forward from where you are. It's simply to just stop and to look at Jesus. Now, for those of us who are believers here, I want to challenge you that this is not a one-and-done process. Um, I think I'm going to get on a hobby horse here as a young adult pastor, right? I think that we have bought into the secular worldview in the way that we live our lives. We have big beliefs about God, but the architecture of how we do every single day is actually so much more determined by Australia than it is by Jesus. And so I think the challenge here for us is to go, we need to go back to first principles and and architect a way of life that means we are constantly living out of a vision of Jesus rather than living out of a vision of ourselves. We need to put aside the way of this world, not just the beliefs of this world, and chase after Jesus with all we've got. And it comes by every single day. And I don't mean to be legalistic, but I just think it's what you need and what I need desperately, is to come and behold Jesus every single day, however you can make it work. You might have kids and it's just crazy. You might have work that's 90 hours a week. I'm not sure what your life circumstance is, but what I can tell you is you need to look at Jesus. You need to see this Jesus because it transforms everything. The place where you are changed is the place where you behold Jesus. We need to look at Jesus. Let me read you a hymn that I don't know if Paul preached here last week, but he read it. Um, where I was, and it was just too good for me not to do the same. So let me, let me finish with this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Another quick shameless plug. If you're a young adult, we have a young adult tonight, 7 o'clock tomorrow night at Neutral Bay. We'd love to see you there. Let me pray. Father Almighty, we just thank you so much that in all of your grandeur and all of your majesty and all of your glory, you sent Jesus, your only son, to die on our behalf 
Thank you, God, that he didn't stay there. He's, he's with you in heaven right now. He is the risen, reigning, exalted King of kings. We just want to thank you that you gave us this vision through your servant, John, and that we can behold you. We just pray for anyone in this room right now that's not sure of you, that's not sure of Jesus, that you might, in the, the reality that you are here, that you would show us yourself. And please, God, would you convict us as a church that the place of our transformation is, is in your presence, beholding who you are. Would you make us a people who live out of a vision of Jesus and out of nothing else? We pray all of this for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus, amen.